What's up, everybody? Welcome to Draft Chaff. My name is Zach. I'm one of your hosts, and joining me, as always, is Ben Fisher. Ben, how's it going? Well, dude, uh, it's election season here in the United States of America, our fantastic country with nothing wrong with it. And uh, let's just say I'm very happy to get to talking about some some nonsense instead of all that nonsense. Spoken. Like <laughs> let's a get a different American. brand of nonsense. Well, this is episode number 20, everybody. And before we get into our main topic here, uh, we got to plug the sponsor. MTG Arena Zone is your top destination for all Magic the Gathering arena articles, decks, news, and more. They've got plenty of content for constructed and limited players alike, from top archetypes to theory articles and much more. So check them out for your daily dose of limited uh, and constructed written content. Uh, but the show is also brought to you by you, the listener. That's right. Via Patreon, you can give back to the show directly and support us in any way you want. Um, we have a number of tiers over there that provide different. That's what I want. <laughs> different rewards. There's yeah, all sorts so- of stuff. There's stickers. There's, I mean, uh, depending on the tier, I could build you a magic deck. Like, I think that's pretty fun. Yeah. So check that out. If you're interested, it's patreon.com forward slash draft chaff pod, where you can get all the details on that. Speaking of which, we got a new patron. Shout out to Arthur, a.k.a. Minman in the Discord. Um, thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for your support. We really can't thank you enough. And yeah. um, with that, Founder Tier is now sold out. We have filled up all three of our Founder Tier slots, but we have plenty of other options that are that can get you all the very very similar to the same uh, rewards as as the Founder Tier. So go ahead and check that out. Yeah. Again, we we really do appreciate it. Even just talking with. I mean, if you're listening now, there's a good chance you heard our interview with Marshall last week, and everything that he had to say about like content creation and monetization and all that kind of stuff. We've been trying to take his advice and take it to heart uh, because he's one of our heroes, right? We look up to him and we trust him. And honestly, he's the expert here. So uh, we we genuinely do appreciate you all giving back. Absolutely. And uh, I mentioned it there briefly, but go ahead and check out our Discord as well. That's completely free. You don't have to be a patron for that at all. Uh, Just jump in there. We have a really awesome community growing over there with really good discussions. And we're continuing to talk about all the new formats that are cropping up lately with uh, Kaladesh Remastered and Commander Legends and such. So... Uh, it's a great place to be and just talk with like-minded people about the formats that are coming up. The episode, uh, sorry, the link to the Discord is in the episode description as well as on our Twitter page. All right, our main topic this week is an in-depth look at the drafting process, uh, and we'll be discussing that with various examples from multiple formats. We kind of want this to be a little bit format agnostic. But before that, we've got a cracker draft type thing. So uh, this pack is kind of interesting let's let's take a look so our first card here is kabira outrider that's uh, is a, a pack one pick one right correct yes pack one pick one so we have kabira, kabira. outrider that's yeah, fine next <laughs> right. next up we have vanquish the week this is an interesting removal spell certainly not deadly alliance or feed the swarm level of powerful but um mm. yeah it's serviceable no it's it's my pick here out of the two of them <laughs> yeah definitely next we have scale the heights i don't really ever put this in my decks maybe if you have like two or more ruin crabs it gets kind of fun with hitting multiple landfall triggers in one turn but i'm not even entirely sure that's that's worth it. i think you'd also want other landfall payoffs too before you're i don't know even then i'm not the biggest fan this yeah. is usually cut this is like a c minus definitely next up we have scorch rider this this card does actually make some of my decks um especially in like red white warriors it can it can make the cut it's nothing exciting but yeah, I don't often kick it either. Uh, it's mm-hmm. usually just a format of 4-3, which in this format, it's pretty big. Uh, I've noticed 3 power and 3 toughness are kind of like the critical uh, mass for creature size in this format. A lot of 3-3s three running around. Uh, a good number of 2-3s as well. 
Uh, and not too many 3-4s. So usually if your creature is a 3-3, three, three, it can attack, it can block, and do whatever you need want it to. So a 4-3 is definitely going to be able to get through, but sometimes it'll trade down. Yeah. I, I'm still on Vanquish here, though, by the way. Same here, yeah. Uh, next up is Resolute Strike. That's the uh, one-mana instant that buffs your, your creatures, a combat trick. Not really, not uh, really into this. <laughs> I mean, no. Uh, in a Warrior's deck, if you have enough equipment for it. But even then, sometimes the Warrior's deck doesn't even play equipment. Sometimes it's just kind yeah. of Warrior Synergies. Uh, maybe if you have like three Maul, the Skyclave, you can put a bunch of these in your deck. But <laughs> at that point, it might not be necessary. For sure. Our next common is Sneaking Guide. And th this card's gone up for me. I've actually liked having this in a lot of my lower-to-the-ground aggressive decks. Um, it lets you sneak in damage. And I've had it sneak in like Teeter Peak Ambushers before combat, and then you pump them after the fact, and uh, you can really chip in some damage that way. Um, it's a decent it's a decent card, but uh, still on Vanquish here. Yeah, I like it. Uh, I like having one of them whenever I have a Relic Robber in my deck, because that's a nice little combo there. Definitely. Our next common is Canopy Bayloth. Yeah, it's it's fine. It's up there in the best green commons. Mm -hmm. Now this four three is one that doesn't often trade down because uh, it doesn't stay as a four three very very long. Now this one's good, although um, honestly pretty close to Vanquish the week. I, I do like Canopy Bayloth. I don't know if I'd take it over Vanquish, but this is not a not the strongest pack. This is a pretty mediocre pack. Let's see what else we can get. Yeah, I think as far as the the Vanquish Canopy Bayloth sort of dilemma there. I'd be on Vanquish mostly because I prefer to be in black than green in this format. Like green is yeah. generally the one of the the worst colors I want to be in. So mm -hmm. next up is Scavenge Blade. Not really interested in that. Uh, we have Strength nope. of Solidarity. Haven't cast it. Nope. A Tazim Royal Mage, which is a great card in, in the kicker deck. I'm I'm certainly interested in taking this. I don't think I'm excited about it being a first pick. I'd rather just pick up the removal and and hope to like. We haven't seen other black cards either. I mean, this is the first blue card we've seen, but. I don't know. I, I I think I'd be on Vanquish over the Royal Mage because they tend to go around the table quite frequently. Yeah, I don't know. I think it might be better than Vanquish. I'd probably take it here. It's probably my pick. Let's see if our uncommons can beat it out. Sure. Uh, next up, we have Cinderclasm as our first uncommon. It's a good card, but you really need to strictly build your deck to make it work. Uh, but it can be a huge blowout. Oh, yeah. Sometimes in, in blue-red kicker, you can do some uh, gross stuff with Risen Riptides in this. I actually ran it in a white red warriors deck recently and like really? basically yeah I basically just drafted all the X3s and uh, I had yeah. I had a few X1s but then or X2s or whatever and then I had two uh Jerboas the Canyon Jerboas so I would always uh, wait to, oh, yeah. to landfall trigger pump twice or whatever and then and then do the thing from there That's um, sweet yeah you can actually get in with a Coom Hellhound with this one too yep. uh crucial three toughness yeah i've had some red decks teeter peak ambusher and this thing get along well but that being said a lot of decks get wiped by this but there's also a lot of three toughness and four toughness creatures so yeah. while this will dunk on an opposing uh not as you know convincingly built warriors deck or, or anything like that even the rogues have high toughness right so yeah. this won't always do the thing you want it to do but eh, when you can cast it and, and you feel like you're you know getting away with it it's good yeah definitely it, it can totally be a blank card though yeah Next up is Relic Amulet. This is uh, the 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 Wizards Matter uh, and uh, Relic card for this format, and mm. this is a great card. Definitely highly pickable. It's not really a colorless card, um, but it does fit. The fact that it it triggers off of instants and sorceries means it technically fits any deck. But you do really want to have a lot of instants and sorceries to make this card really do the thing. But it's a removal spell that repeats itself. Like you can't get much better. 
Yeah, um, I've played this in blue red. I've played this in blue green. I played this in blue black once, and it was sick. Like if you have a high enough wizard count, a lot of the blue cards are just wizards. So this ends up slotting into your, any blue decks really well. Uh, blue white is one of the few cases where it doesn't go as well, unless you can get a few far sided depths, in which case it's still great. So this is by far the pick here. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And this is a card that you can take and not really feel bad about not getting. Like if if you take this card you are looking to pick up as many wizards and instants and sources as you can, but this isn't locking you into a color. It's not really like forcing you in any way. So that that's really good too. Yeah. It, it does kind of keep you open as far as archetypes. It's not like this is a blue, red, gold uncommon, right? In right. which case uh, you're kind of locked into blue, red wizards. While this can be in blue, red wizards, it can be in multiple other archetypes because uh, of the, the cool wizard design in the set. So yeah. Yeah, this is a pretty great first pick. I like taking all the relic stuff first. Uh, I don't mind any of them. Yeah, they don't, they don't wheel very often either. So when you can when you see them, you probably should be taking them if it's early enough uh, and, it, mm -hmm. and it fits your deck. Um, our next uncommon is Black Bloom Rogue. This is another card that I'm pretty high on. I think the 2-3 uh, the Menace that just gets bigger and it's a land, like probably one of the best MDFCs in my book. I yeah, don't know if I it's agree. quite better than Relic Amulet this early because you do need it to it really needs to hit that that eight cards in graveyard to be over the top um yeah what do you think on its own it's fine i do think this is a pretty close pick like we said earlier i love starting with a black card uh there's so many things that just wind up going well for you when you wind up drafting black in some way and this fits in any black deck of course um it's probably best in the party deck but i, I like it in a uh, ro uh well no it's best in rogues you know it's a rogue. of course but uh after that it's a best in party and then after that i've played this in clerics and you know it works um picking up with the uh the raptor uh that that goes pretty well for mm -hmm. this between the rogue and the amulet mm, amulet's probably the right pick here but uh, i might take the rogue i don't know at this point in the format I've, i'm a big fan of this card i just like playing with dfcs and i, I want to get as much as i can in before they rotate to the next uh next format yeah, I always, I'm always tempted to take these MDFCs, especially the ones that are powerful cards like by themselves on the non-land side because mm -hmm. they really let you splash aggressively and yeah. that that can be pretty big. But Relic Amulet's pretty powerful and I haven't drafted a proper Wizards deck yet, so I'd probably take that. Yeah, um, I, I've played with it a bunch. If you if you want to win games, take the Amulet here. Uh, if you want to have a little fun, maybe take the Rogue. <laughs> you'll win games with the Rogue too. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, but our rare here is Shatter Skull Charger. That's the one red, mm. red uh, giant warrior with kicker. It has trample and haste, and then it, it bounces itself if you don't pay the kicker cost. Yeah, this is a strong card. I, I really like it. Uh, I've played this as a top end in red, white warriors. That's right. Top end at three or occasionally five, which that deck is very capable of. And it's good. It's huge. It has haste. It has trample. What more could you ask? And then occasionally, I, I do think of this more of as a five drop. Uh, yeah. With the occasional upside of, I drew all my twos and fours, and I need something to do on turn three to spend all my mana effectively. In which case, this works in that way. It's kind of like a ball lightning effect. Which, for those that don't know, um, it's it's a three three mana uh, like a six one or something like that with trample and haste, and you sacrifice it at the end step. Uh, so people don't usually block it because it's just going to go away anyway, right? But then in this case, they're actually kind of incentivized to block it. So. If you do end up just playing it and they have to trade off or like double block or something like that or spend a removal spell, then you don't even have to worry about the bouncing to your hand thing. That can be an upside in some ways instead of a downside. Yeah, really cool design there because it lets you get your kicker back from, you know, you can play it on three and then get it back and kick it on five. Like It's just really cool design. Yeah, I like it. I think it would be my pick here. Um, although I wouldn't 
it is actually fairly close with Relic Amulet. Uh, I wouldn't follow anyone for taking the Amulet, but like I said, at this point in the format, I'm ready to have a little fun. I'm taking the Charger here. Yeah, I think I'm with you in general. I, I don't know. I might I might take the Amulet just to stay open and Shatter Skull Charger. If you're going to play it, you're going to have to be in red. It's not really a splashable card. Yeah, that's true. Like I, I mean, still, I, I, like I said, I, I'm probably I probably waffle on it for a little while. This, this is what would happen if I was drafting. I would open this pack, I look at it, and I go, "Wow." Relic Amulet is probably the right pick over the Rogue, but I'm going to take the Charger because uh, it's nonsense time. Yeah, I mean, it's a great rare. Don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. Well, that brings us to our Teferi Tybalt this week. For those who, who are maybe new to the show, if you, haven't, if you haven't heard this before, essentially this is the section of the show where Ben and I kind of talk about uh, something that went well this week, something that went poorly this week, and we just get to chat a little bit about our weeks. So, Ben, why don't you kick us off? Sure thing. So my Tybalt, my, uh, my low point... Like I mentioned, it's it's election season, dude. And uh, it is. At, at, I don't know. It's a bunch of stress for everyone that's uh, been thinking about it, right? Without diving too deep into the, the nuances of American politics, there's a lot of messy stuff going on right now. A lot of racism, a lot of bigotry, a lot of generally not good things happening. And seeing a lot of that gain massive support is tough to watch. So that has really had me down this week. And of course, the stress of, I mean, maybe by the time this episode comes out, we'll know who's won this election. Those of you who know the countries, I mean, whatever, this doesn't, you don't have to care about this one that much. Although I guess it will impact world politics in some way, shape or form. But honestly, it's just a drain. Like I woke up this morning and I immediately pulled up Twitter to see if there are any updates. And then I just kind of stared at it for 20 minutes like, oh man, like this is, ugh. of course, I mean, even coming from a place of pretty high privilege, like. Uh, I, I know a lot of my friends and, and family that'll be impacted in this in, in some way, shape or form, but there's a lot of people out there that'll be impacted in even worse ways. And that also is a bit of a bummer, right? So yeah. that's been a big tipple for me this week. But uh, my Teferi uh, was, I won, a, I won Teacher of the Month. So that was a Wow, kind of fun. that's awesome. Congrats. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Um, it was a bit of a surprise. I've been doing some work in my school, uh, volunteering for clubs and things like that, getting involved in the robotics team, which is very cool. Uh, like championship level. Like they're real, real, they're really good. In fact, most of them are better at that kind of thing than I am than their high schoolers. So, um, besides that, I've just been kind of getting involved and, and I guess, uh, it, I will say it's really nice to have all the hard work validated. You know, it's nice to know that I'm not just dumping time into a void or something yeah, <laughs> that, uh, yeah. That people are responding to it, so it was it was nice. I got a ten dollar Duncan gift card, so uh, sweet. <laughs> yeah, what more can I ask for, right? That's awesome. Congrats. Thanks. How about you? Yeah. So for me, um, my Teferi is that I'm still riding the high that was having Marshall Sutcliffe on this show last week. <laughs> Dude, um, it's insane. I still kind of can't get over it, and like you know, both of us jumped into his stream the other day, and and yeah. he like recognized us instantly. It was just so oh my cool. god. It was awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, really, really awesome. And it was great to chat with him last week. My Tybalt, uh, unfortunately, this week as well, despite that awesome stuff happening last week, I, I've i been writing like some really, really awful anxiety. Uh, and I'm not I'm not an anxious person. Like, I rarely worry about anything. Most of the time, like, bad things will happen. I'm just like, yeah, then it happens. But I've had some really bad anxiety. Pretty much every morning since Saturday, I've woken up with, like, the heart racing, like panic yeah, inducing like kind physical, of anxiety. Yeah, the physical anxiety. I was going to say it's like the physical or the mental because those sometimes they, they have different effects, you know? Yeah, it's generally been kind of a hybrid. Um, I definitely get the physical aspects of it, but then I'm also one who likes to like, I, I, I 
fixate on things in my head so i'll i'll fixate on the fact that i'm feeling it physically and then that will spiral my mind got a nice so, little downward spiral in there yeah uh so i i'm not really sure what to do about this it might be a result of my thyroid i have um i have a i have a thyroid condition that changes it fluctuates uh and that can cause that so it's possible that's what it is i got blood work uh two weeks ago now or a week and a half ago and i just need to meet my doctor about the results on that so maybe that's it and i just need my medication fixed and i'll be good but yeah it's well, come at a bad gets, time because as you mentioned it's election yeah. season so hopefully that gets resolved quickly it's not fun to, to have to deal with that sorry to hear it yeah thanks but hey well, maybe we can uh maybe we can follow Marshall's lead and go get some draft chaff therapy together. <laughs> yeah, I like it. I like it. That sounds like a great idea. Therapy chaff. <laughs> yeah. Well, once once we're done here, I'm gonna get some Chinese food, go watch a show with with my wife, and just chill. So hopefully that'll, yep. that'll be a good good way to calm. Sounds down like a plan. And uh, what else is better to talk about to kind of de stress than some listener questions of the week, huh? Absolutely. So- <laughs> <laughs> cut that. That we can cut. Yeah. So this week, Jaren asks, I often hear people in set reviews say, that's a good body for X mana, or that body's a bit behind but behind what you'd expect for the cost, but the ability makes up for it. How do you evaluate stats to costs when drafting, particularly when taking keywords into account as well? This is a really deep question, and it really boils down to card evaluation at its core. Ben and I were talking before we started recording today that we're gonna we're hoping to do a whole episode on card evaluation sometime in the relatively near future, um, and we'll break down. There are a lot of different theories that great content creators have have come up with on how to evaluate cards and what that really means. But the gist of it is, um, you know, there's there's this notion of the vanilla test, and vanilla test basically says you're getting X power and toughness for X cost. So and it's, it's not quite linear, but basically a one, one for one, two, two for two, three, three for three and scaling up. And then any keywords also add that uh, add to that 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 factor. So something that beats the vanilla test might be like a, you know, a two, three flyer for two or whatever or flyer for three. I mean, a two, three flyer for two would be ridiculous, but that's pretty good. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of the gist uh, without getting into too much detail here. Ben, do you want to add to that at all? Yeah, sure. So I think. I think when Jaren asks about specifically hearing people say like that's a good body for X mana, uh, we're talking about historically there, right? So, uh, and, and this has changed over time. For example, they used to print, uh, and, and this actually kind of factors into it. They used to print uh, cards that had like generic names that people now use to refer to other cards. So, a hill giant, for example, is a four mana three three, or a grizzly bear is a two mana two two, that type of thing. But uh, hill giant, for example, four mana three three. There would be one point in Magic in the history where that would be a pretty decent card, right? Uh, you could reasonably put that into a deck and attack and block with it. But now look, all of our hill giant types, uh, they all have enter the battlefield effects, right? Uh, Cascade Seer or uh, things like that. So it's a little bit what I would say under-costed. Where, for example, uh, Cascade Seer, I think the ability kind of makes up for it. It's not a great card. For example, there's like four mana four fours floating around in limited sets, right? And that's a little bit better for its body. And then when you start getting other, uh, you know, abilities on it, actually, I was thinking about the one from the upcoming, um, or not Amonkhet Remastered, Kaladesh Remastered. Uh, it's, I forget, it's a boar. It's the red, green, gold card, uh, but it's a four mana, four, four, and it has, can't be blocked by creatures of power two or less. So that is way above the vanilla test because it has uh, the body that you would expect. It has the four power and four toughness for four mana. Uh, and that has a very strong ability on it. So that 
you know, is a good card on its own. So I would say consider this historically and think about how, I mean, if, if you're new to magic, then you don't have that historical context, right? As for right now, I would say kind of look at some of the past sets, maybe um, pull up the last few, the ones that cycle onto arena every once in a while, maybe Theros, maybe Eldraine. Check out some of the cards in there. For example, um, there is a card in Theros that is a three mana one four with reach and there's a life gain ability on it's not great because you're not getting stat, stat equity for the cost that you're putting into it, right? Uh, one example that I want to use to kind of break this mold is a card called Gigantomancer, which was actually from old, old Zendikar. Pretty sure. Call me out on that if I'm wrong. But it's a, I believe, an 8-mana 1-1. One, one. Uh, so then you have to ask yourself, well, what on earth is the other text on this card going to be that makes it actually worth putting in a deck? And uh, I believe the... the ability is like you pay one mana and target creatures base power and toughness becomes eight eight or something like that it's something it's something nuts um but in that case then you have an effect that doesn't quite make it past the vanilla test i mean it dies to a shock right but maybe the ability makes up for it that's where you have to start getting into the specific evaluation skills and of course this is just for creatures uh, i think like zach said in the future episode we're going to want to go into uh, card evaluation for other types as well yeah, definitely. I think I think the historical bit is is huge, and you'll hear a lot of different. Uh, you know, if you listen to podcasts or watch videos or whatever, you'll hear a lot of different content creators say, or actually, even in the community, you'll hear you'll hear hear other players say, "Well, that's just a worse X, so it's not good." So there is historical context. You definitely want to keep that in mind, and you want to remember. You know, for instance, the Hill Giant thing that Ben was talking about. Hill Giant four mana three three. In this format, we have. Uh, the the vampire highborn vampire it's a four mana four three so you'd immediately think oh that's better than hill giant but it's really at this point in magic's lifespan and and in modern limited formats it's not a good card and and highborn vampire is only really passable because it's a warrior in this format so there's context involved and you definitely want to look at that for those base card evaluations especially when a set's brand new and you're looking at say the spoilers or something like that it gives you a good opportunity to kind of say well, I know this card was good before, so let's see how it matches up in this current environment. But you also want to remember that it is a different environment. And especially now that, that f limited formats are single sets, they used to be multiple sets at a time that you could you could draft. You know, you'd either draft um, for Kaladesh, for instance, you'd draft Kaladesh and Aether Revolt in the Aether Revolt format. You'd packs of both. So in those situations, you would actually take the older sets and compare them to the newer one. And that com that comparison would be valid for that format. You want to be careful doing that with modern sets because every set is its own format. But you need you need context to be able to evaluate cards before you get to play with them uh, and, and formulate mm -hmm. new context. So, yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. So next up, Wolverine asks, uh, how do you decide on how aggressive you should be? He's got an example here. Uh, I drafted Roost of Drakes in a recent draft. I actually ended up with two of them and plenty of kicker cards. Off to a pretty great start, right? Yep. I felt like I used it well and I had several Drakes on the board at the time. But I felt like I needed to be aggressive, so I was attacking with them and usually getting in for two damage while also losing a drake or trading one for another flyer. Eventually, I'd run out of the drakes and have kicker cards, and I'd lose the game. What summed up the losses? Uh, I summed up the losses just being too aggressive. What do you think? Uh, and then also mentions that I guess the real question is, should uh, attacking often be a two-for-one on my end? Or how do you decide on attacking and possibly trading or sitting back and playing conservatively? Good question here. Yeah, definitely. I think in general, I mean... Of course, two for one is bad. You don't want to two for one yourself because <laughs> yeah, your, your opponent's getting card advantage. Tokens generally are looked at as less than a card. They're not quite a full card's worth of, of resources. 
Mm-hmm. But a two-two flyer is is a real card. You know, that's that's not nothing. And I think you want to be looking at you kind of there's some math to do there, right? Because you want to look at the board and say, if I have four Drakes and they have a two-three, I can attack for four turns with my Drakes, get in for six, get in for four, get in for two, and then nothing, right? And then you're out and they have their two, three, and then they can keep swinging. So often, if I were in that situation, that would be a board stall for me. I wouldn't be attacking into the two, three with my two twos mm. unless they're at, say, like eight life. Yeah. If they're at, if they're at a point where they're a, the math checks out on my end, sure, I'm losing a creature every turn, but they won't be able to kill me before those creatures kill them. Then being aggressive is probably correct there. Yeah, I guess it also depends on what you're trading off with, right? So if my opponent has um, like an Expedition Diviner, for example, the 3-2 Flyer, and I, I don't love killing it if they have another Wizard on board. You know, getting that card for them is kind of rough. But let's say it's the only Flyer and the only Wizard that they have, and I have two Drakes, absolutely slamming him with the Drakes, right? Because those Drakes, uh, besides the first two, I guess in this case, the first one that you get when you kick it, uh, that one I'd like to think of as the value you're getting from the, the kicked card. It's a four mana 2-2 two, two flyer, right? And then from that point on, anytime you cast a kicker card, you get an additional Drake. And I like to think of that as kind of like a free little bonus Drake. It doesn't take a lot of kicker cards to get your value out of Rooster Drakes. It's an insane magic card. Everyone knows this at this point. So kind of like what Zach was saying, I, I hate pulling out the old, it's context dependent card, but it's context dependent, right? So I think one good general thing to check uh, if you're ever in this kind of situation again and th- thinking about, oh, is it time for me to be aggressive? Is it time for me to hold back? I actually had a similar game where I was uh, sitting with the Rooster Drakes and a few kicker cards and my opponent was starting to build out some flyers and I thought about attacking. And then I thought, well, wait a minute. Literally, what am I drawing next? Like, what is coming in my deck that's going to change uh, this plan that I have right now? Always be thinking about the plan that you have to win. And I thought, well, hold on. I pulled up my, uh, I use untapped as my like deck overlay. So I pulled up untapped and I was like, okay, I still have three Skyclave Sentinels in my deck. The artifact creature with kicker. I was like, well, if I just start top decking those, then I can start swinging with all my flyers and then I'm getting in for huge amounts of damage instead of just maybe trading off, maybe getting one eaten. Because at that point, I'm presenting a real clock. And I was like, all right, in that case, I'm just going to chill. I held back for a few turns. I think a turn or two later, I top decked uh, one of those artifact dudes, kicked it, and then I top decked another one. I kicked that. And uh, I won the game in the air after that. Because then at that point, it became much harder for them to create good blocks, right? I have a massive 4-5 or five flyer and also a 2-2 two, two attached to it. So I think it requires you to think about what your game plan is, what your deck has left in it. If you have no other big flyers or no other kicker cards, well, then maybe it is time to start getting a little aggressive before your opponent, maybe they're on, I don't know, blue-black, is trying to mill you out or trying to win through card advantage. So think about what your game plan is here. Um, and ideally, you've drafted with the game plan in mind. But uh, no spoilers. Let's let's get into that section in about a minute. Yeah, no, you hit you hit the nail on the head there. I think definitely take your own game plan into into consideration. Take your opponent's game plan into consideration as well. How does your game plan match up against theirs? And yeah. if it's kind of a grindy matchup where you can afford, yeah, you have these flyers on board, but they also have flyers that will eat yours. Well, now you're stalling. They they can't attack right because if you have multiple blockers, your blockers will eat their attacker and then they're on the same back foot that you are considering being on so you get that board stall if that's something that helps you just ride that out you can top deck a removal spell get rid of their flying blocker and then you get in play to your outs basically is is how you want to look at that i think yep 
All right, so our main topic here, we're getting into a bit of uh, sort of a beginner episode. So we want to talk about draft basics. Just what is draft as a format? What does it mean to draft? Uh, how do you draft well? What are some good things to keep in mind when you're drafting? And a few little game changers that we're going to throw in there to uh, hopefully up your draft skill as well. Yeah, so even if you're not a beginner, hopefully you can still take something cool away from this episode. These are things that things that like we're still learning, you know, things that we like to consider every once in a while and make sure we're following along with too. So let's go over the basics of a draft. First of all, well, you're going to need your basics. Uh, I usually bring 10 of each basic uh, to a draft table. That's the basics. Oh my goodness. What's next? Okay, I'm sorry. The actual basics. Well, back in the olden times before the plague, uh, you would sit down at a table with uh, seven other people. Maybe uh, sometimes you'd play in a total group of six, sometimes 10, uh, and you'd each open a pack. You would take a card, you'd pass the pack to the left, and then you'd take a card from that one, and so on and so forth. And then when you run out of cards, you do it again to the right and then to the left in the pack after that. The end goal is to put together a cohesive deck that you'd want to play against the other people in your draft pod, as we used to call it. So I used to have a lot of fun doing this. I really miss this aspect of, of in-person stuff. Uh, Friday night drafts were one of my favorite ways to make friends at my local game store, uh, to see old friends, to hang out with people that I don't know so well, but I want to get to know. Like This was a fun way to make friends in the community. Actually, something kind of notable about this set, if we were in person, we'd have to reveal all of our flip cards uh, because that's just kind of a wizard's rule. If you have a, a draft format where there's double-faced ones, you're supposed to reveal them to the table because it wouldn't be fair if you know someone could see that, oh, I just saw the back of a Shatter Skull smashing. Like, oh, that guy's got that. And I saw the pe person pass it. And then, oh, well, she didn't flip it over. So I saw it, but they didn't. So everyone would just reveal them as soon as they're opened. That's a little fun thing that gets you know, missed out on online. But uh, one thing I don't miss from, from in-person is people like taking the pack, looking at it and go, you passed me this card? Oh my like, goodness. Like you passed this? Like you should have taken this card. Because like, come on, shut up. I, I know what cards I'm taking. Even if like I pass a, a rare, it's because I took the foil mythic, duh. So yeah, I love I love that mentality too because it's like, you know, maybe, maybe it wheeled, right? Like maybe the pack has gone around and somebody's like, oh, this actually made it to me. Sure, whatever. But up, up up until that point, you haven't seen the whole pack, so you don't know what I took. You don't know that I'm in the colors to take the card I passed you. So, like, what? Well, come on. Yep. It, it, it literally is just, like, making a buffoon of yourself for a table of people that, I mean, could potentially be your friends. I, I there's it is a, It's a bad value play to say that kind of thing. Absolutely. Actually, one thing, one thing that I miss doing is, uh, like, opening, like, a, a, a super bad rare, like, super chaff. And there used to be some pretty bad rares and not, not, we don't get too many like gross bad ones. But um, if you ever get like, uh, I don't know, a foil, uh, what's the, what, the Vortex card? The, uh, the, the weird like legacy focus thing with non-creature or non-cast spells like deal five or something that. that. Oh, geez. What? I don't know. It's, it's, it's the one in this set, the one in a red enchantment. I forget oh, what it's oh, called. Oh, oh, oh. I never take it. Yeah, yeah, I know. Sorry. Roiling was... Vortex, maybe? Well, if I would, like, open something like a Roiling Vortex, I'd, like, and it was, like, foil or something, I'd be like, ooh, money card, and I'd pass it to the person next to me. <laughs> I, I like having some shenanigans with it, but... Yeah. No, it's, it's definitely an experience, and it's different than the modern, sort of, the new normal of drafting online. And one other thing worth noting as well is that you would play, like, we're used to playing in leagues, right? Mm, um, yeah. Normally, you would play against all the other people in your pod, so you would know their relative power level of their decks because you've seen the cards that are going around the table. So now everybody's just kind of playing. 
Like you don't have that to rely on, but you get to fire yeah. drafts whenever you want. So that's good too. Yeah, that is the upside. So before we really get into these game changers we were talking about, let's cover a little bit of vocab for anybody who may not, you know, you're listening to this, you might be new to to draft completely. So we just wanted to cover a few keywords that that are often spoke to, spoken of uh, in draft circles and get you covered there. So the first we have is an archetype. Archetype is basically a potential deck plan. It's usually two color in, in most formats, but can be one color or even more than than two colors. Um, and that's all it is. Essentially, it's it's a specific subset of cards in the in the format that come together well to create a cohesive deck plan. Uh, next is a signal. A signal is when you get past a really strong card, um, and and basically seeing a really strong card past you is a signal that other that that color or archetype is open. If it's pack one or early pack two, you want to go in on that because that tells you nobody's valuing this card, which means they're not going to value cards that make this card work. And that helps you find your lane. And lane is the next car- next uh, keyword we want to talk about here. Um, and a, a lane is when you're clearly in open colors, you're getting past cards that are that are good for those colors or that archetype. That's your lane. You're you're in the section of the draft or the seat at the table where this is the deck you should be drafting. Mm-hmm. So those that happen to also catch Marshall Sutcliffe's stream will know that uh, he was really in his lane. He got probably the best black white clerics deck I've ever seen, which is probably the best like deck in the format. So it was probably the best ZNR deck I've ever seen. Go look at his, his uh, bot of that. But he was so far in his lane that even when he disconnected, the bots auto-picked a bomb rare for him. I, I highly recommend going and watching it over. Keep an yeah. eye out for us. We actually get a, a little shout out in there too. So anyway, um, let's get into some of our, our uh, main topics here, our, our game changers that we want to have you focus on. First of all, I just really want to shout out Drafting the Hard Way. Uh, by Ben Stark. If you want to master draft and and this portion of it, like the physical passing of cards, you're doing yourself a disservice if you have not read Draft in the Hard Way. I honestly, I reread it every once in a while. It's just that good. Yeah, I always go back to it. It's a great, great article and it really uh, opened my eyes and helped me with quite a few game changers uh, in the past as well. Mm -hmm. So first up, draft the deck with a plan. So Essentially, don't just take a pile of cards, right? You want to have a plan for how we're going to win. So this means analyzing cards as you see them and in context rather than in a vacuum. So for example, if you just take the best card by some arbitrary ranking system, uh, for example, some overlays will put on like LSV's rankings or uh, different rankings from different people or accumulated rankings, that kind of thing. If you just follow and take the best uh, card in every pack, you'll wind up with a decent deck, but it won't be very good against some of the synergy decks in the format. So maybe in certain core sets, I don't know, some of the older ones, sometimes you can get away with just taking the best card in every pack. But even in M21 and M20, the more recent ones, you can't get away with that anymore. You have to look for synergy. You have to look for uh, your lane, as you said. Definitely. There are a lot of conversations around having a ranking system or a card, card, uh, you know, evaluating cards and then having some sort of, you know, grade and and having a whole list of the every card in the set with with grades on them and following that and that's great and they work and especially when you're new to a format that's a great way to understand which cards you should be looking out for when they're past you when you open them all those things but the biggest thing that ben mentioned as part of that little blurb he gave is that the context matters and that's kind of been our motto this whole the whole (laughs) draft like all of draft chat we say it almost every episode context matters and it's it the same is true for those ranking systems or those card evaluations the context of each individual draft you took one card from pack one uh, pack one pick one pack one pick two you took another card 
pack one, pick three, you'll see an A plus, or maybe not an A plus, it might be too high, but like a, a B, let's say a B, B minus for some other deck, but you also see a C plus that would make your deck much stronger. Well, that C plus is actually going to probably be higher than that B, B minus because it fits mm -hmm. your deck very well. Yeah. So it's also important to be able to analyze the cards based on the ones that you have kind of like this. So uh, an example of this might be getting, like Zach said, a, a pick three Maddening Cacophony when your first two picks were Hedron Crabs, right? In most decks, in most blue decks, you wouldn't really want to put Maddening Cacophony in. It's the rare that mills uh, eight cards, or if you kick it, mills half the deck. You can't just put that in any blue deck, uh, especially one that's like maybe blue-green uh, without a Hedron Crab. They don't want that. They want to be ramping and kicking. But if your first two picks were both Hedron Crabs, well, then all of a sudden you have a plan and you have to draft around it. So then you want to also look for like Mind Drains or, or things like that if you want to move into black or Zulaport Duelist if you want to stay blue and then figure out where you're going to go from there. Uh, now, stick to this plan, but don't be afraid to deviate if it starts to dry up, right? If you took uh, the, that Hedron Crab, then Hedron Crab, then Cacophony, and then you didn't see another blue card in the next two packs, you got to go, whoa, wait a minute, something's up here. Maybe I got a false signal. Maybe the person directly to my right ended up moving into blue, but they just weren't on the mill plan, right? Maybe they're actually playing uh, like a blue-red wizard's deck, and they actually just weren't interested in these cards. Now I need to suddenly pivot and figure out what my new plan is going to be. One example of this that I, I wanted to throw out here is for drafting a deck with a plan. Uh, and then, of course, you have to actually execute the plan, right? Uh, don't attack with your hedron crabs. Um, one example of this is red-green decks in most formats. Something kind of common in a lot of formats is to have a red-green deck that can get there on the ground. Uh, it's got big creatures, but then maybe the opponent's rogues deck starts to take over. They have a bunch of big toughness blockers or death touchers or, or uh, things that make it a little tough to get in for that last little bit of damage. I found uh, using the wings, uh, kite sail in this set. Usually a format has like a, an artifact that gives flying. I just call it the wings, whatever the wings are for the set. Sometimes you can put in a single copy of Wings in the red-green deck if it doesn't have a lot of uh, late-game power or punch, like a last way to get through for the extra damage. So then, uh, if you're drafting and you have a bunch of red-green cards, maybe if you are you know, pretty good on two drops, pretty good on three and four drops, and you're like, well, wait a minute, how am I going to win against you know, a board stall if I go against the mirror match, for example? Well, if it's pack three, you're like, well, wait a minute, I have the chance to pick up some Wings or another two-drop that might not even make my deck? Grab the Wings! especially if you're in best of three and you're going to have the opportunity to sideboard. Yeah, and that's that's a great bonus of drafting online as well. And I guess in casual circles, like drafting in person allows you to do this too, but you get to look at your deck the whole time you're, you're building, so or the whole time you're drafting rather, so you can kind of build a deck as you go. And that helps you shore up your weaknesses much easier uh, by the time you hit pack three because you can look at the deck the, while you're waiting for pack three or the whole time you're drafting pack two and look, to, look at it and really think what weaknesses does this deck have what is the plan and what plans beat my plan and then you can use pack three to pick up the cards that will shore up those weaknesses for you mm -hmm. so that kind of segues into finding your lane right you want to draft a deck with a plan but once you start to see a plan coming together and generally you'll, you'll kind of see your lane before you get your plan together uh, and they kind of come hand in hand but you want to find your lane overall and that is as we said figuring out which colors are open and which colors other players are willing to pass to you in either direction, left or right. So as packs are passed to you, they're filtered through the hands of the players that are around you, right? You are passing packs to them, they're taking cards out of that those packs, and then they get back to you and you have to take cards from those. Your job as a drafter is to figure out which cards are missing 
from those packs that are getting past you so that you can determine which card you should be taking in every pack. And that's kind of huge. It's like, uh, you know, sort of reading between the lines or, or looking for what isn't there as much as what is. And sometimes when Ben and I do videos for drafts or, or we talk about, you know, our draft walkthroughs and you see other uh, content creators making these as well, you'll you'll see pack one, pick two. This is very common, but you'll get the pack. The pack will get passed and you'll look and say, well, the rare's missing or they took an uncommon here. So what does that mean mm-hmm. about about the pack they saw? Or they took a common. And that usually if a common is taken, pack one, pick one, that tells you a lot because there are very few commons that are better than uncommons and, and rares even. So yeah. those are things that you want to look at and try to understand, okay, if they took a common and the only common that's better than any than every like uncommon and rare is into the royal or you know, whatever. Well then they must have taken the royal, into the royal eruption. Royal eruption, any whatever yeah. the card happens to be, whatever but, royal card you choose, yeah, they must be they must have picked a blue card, and then you can keep an eye on that. Well, I'm not seeing blue cards now, so they they must be in blue. I shouldn't try to be in blue. Um, and that that's sort of what you want to look at, but then also keep an eye on which cards you are getting past. So, this means kind of understanding the archetypes that are in a given format and understanding which cards are important to those archetypes because. Most of the time, especially early on in the pack, you're going to see cards of every color. If the car, if the packs are collated nicely, you'll see cards of every color. And that doesn't always mean that those colors are open. So you need to understand which cards are important to which archetypes and then use that understanding to formulate an opinion on, well, nobody's drafting this deck. If I see a Cleric of Lifespawn come my way, pack, you know, pick two, pack seven, <laughs> nobody's drafting that deck and I should be drafting it because it's, yeah. it's pretty open. Um, and you don't really know those things without playing the format to some degree and also knowing the cards in the format and what what cards are linchpins for what archetypes. Yeah, it's almost, uh, I mean, this is a whole logic sub game, right? You have to know an approximate value of everything else in the set so that when, like you mentioned, you get past three uncommons and a rare, you got to say, wait a minute, commons missing. What commons are better than I don't know, these three specific uncommons and whatever rare that pe- got past you. And there are a lot of decent rares in the set, a lot of uh, like Bs and B pluses and As. So, I mean, I've, oftentimes if you see a missing common in this format, specifically, it's going to be an Inch of the Royal or a Royal Eruption. I don't think there's any of the commons I would take over most of the uncommons or rares. But uh, being able to analyze that effectively will help you figure out what they're in. And, and similar, this actually almost has the same mentality to uh, bluffing. If you want to go back and listen to our, our bluffing bit about how it's important to bluff the same card over and over again, it's important to keep in your head what do we think they are, to keep that mental hypothesis of what's going on to our right, virtually, I guess. Uh, they could be any direction from you, relatively speaking. But to keep that idea in your head of what we think they're in, don't look and see that uh, they, they passed no good blue cards and then think that they uh, are in blue and then see that they passed no good green cards and think that they're in green. Keep these in mind. Think of them as data points and kind of have this working model in your head of what they could be in based on what you've seen. Absolutely. And this is another reason why a lot of people will spout about being open, staying open. Uh, what, what does staying open really mean? And that the whole notion of staying open is that you're as uncommitted as possible for as long as possible. Right, you want to make sure that you are picking up cards that will fit into as many archetypes as you can early on in the draft. So that way, when you open a bomb rare in pack two, or you open a bomb rare in pack three, or you're past the bomb in pack two, or or whatever it happens to be, you are flexible enough to say, I can take that card, and that card's going to make my deck better. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
So Ben, you have an example here of, of a good way, like a uh, finding your lane sort of example. Yeah, that's true. So one time during a draft, I kind of waffled back and forth, which is uh, waffling, a uh, little extra vocab word for you, a little bonus vocab, is what happens when you don't pick a lane uh, and you wind up kind of split between multiple. So I was waffling between, uh, I was in black. I had first picked like a Deadly Alliance or something. And I was back and forth between uh, black, white clerics and blue, black rogues. And I kind of waffled a little longer than I should have. I took a lot of black cards, but then I never really found my second color. So in pack three, I was just black, and then I had some decent white cards and some decent blue cards, but I didn't know where I was going. Uh, and at that point, it was a little too late for me to, to get anything cohesive because the weirdest thing about draft is that people are analyzing you too. So people may have been reading my signals and thinking, well, what's going on over there? I'm just taking all these white cards and taking all these blue cards. Uh, and I hadn't really been sending a strong signal either. So another little bonus you know, tip here for you, um, kind of a game changer that you can think of is what cards you pass, right? Think about how the person to your left is thinking about your packs as you pass them. What will they see if you take uh, a good, if you first pick a Royal Eruption, are you passing like a, I don't know, a Kazandu Mammoth, for example, uh, which I don't know, that might be the pick, Royal Eruption over Kazandu Mammoth. That's fair. You justify that. Well, then if they first picked a green card, they're taking the Mammoth and they're in green. And you better remember that for pack two, right? So if you do end up drafting a bunch of red cards and then you see the person to your right pass a few good green ones, don't think, well, maybe I can move it on green because you already sent the signal to your person on your left that green is open. And then in pack two, you're going to get horribly cut. Maybe they wind up in green, red, and then you wind up with nothing from the, from the left, right? Yeah, and I, I find this, you'll, you'll hear me talk about this a lot when we do uh, like, you know, the what's uh, the crack of pack type thing and uh, draft videos and such. I am a big proponent of cutting colors when you're trying to make sure you stay open. And mm -hmm. by that, I mean, if you're stuck on, a, on picking two cards, let's say in a vacuum, right? Let's ignore the cards you've picked. Maybe it's a pack one, pick one and you're stuck between two powerful uncommons. What I would do is look at those cards. What colors are they? What, maybe one's black and one's blue. What other blue and black cards are in the pack? Are, there, are you looking at, say, an Umara, Umara wizard and an Into the Royal as the two blue cards in the pack, and there's just a, you know the Black Bloom Rogue, for instance? which wouldn't mm -hmm. happen because they're both MDFCs, but whatever, yeah, you know, <laughs> you have, you have one really good black card and you have two really good blue cards. Mm -hmm. Now maybe the, the blue uncommon is actually the best card in the pack and probably would be the pick in the vacuum. I'd be tempted to take the black card because, well, I'm not signaling to my opponent that I took anything black because there are no black cards in the pack. And maybe that is a signal and they're going to look at that and say, well, there aren't black cards in this pack. Either there weren't any or they took a black card. But that could mm -hmm. tell them, okay, I shouldn't take black cards. Um, and you are passing two blue cards to your opponent, which kind of puts them in blue. But it helps you determine what cards they're taking because you might not be taking necessarily the best card in the pack. But I like to keep that in mind because it helps you stay open and it helps you kind of ensure that your opponent's not not taking a certain color or th that the person you're left's not taking a color. Yeah, right. It's kind of a gameplay strategy that we can port into draft. Uh, usually the fewer choices you give your opponent, the better. So in this case, we're reducing the choices that they have. If we're passing these two good blue cards, it's kind of saying, hey, wink, wink, get in the blue. But if we pass a good blue and a good black card, well, then who knows? Maybe they end up taking the blue card and then you get cut in pack two. Yep, exactly. So our last little game changer here is one that I mentioned last week when we were talking to Marshall and one that I've been thinking about a lot since then. Don't force a deck around your first pick. So 
I've been thinking about, I mentioned some stats last week, but I've been thinking about this. I think you should probably be playing your first pick between like 50 and 70% of the time, realistically. And I think most Magic players probably fall between 70 and 100% of the time, right? If you are playing it 100% of the time, if you always play your first pick, it means something's going wrong. It means you're not reading the signals that you're getting from the people on either side of you. For example, let's say you take a Kazandu Mammoth as your first pick, and then you don't see any good green cards, but you happen to see, like, I don't know, someone passes you a Hagramalling. That doesn't happen, but let's say someone passes you a Hagramalling and uh, another, what's another good black card? A black Bloom Rogue in the same pack. Also can't also happen can't because happen. of the, yeah. okay okay the, the the point is that these names are in my head right now we uh, we do our research here at Draft Jeff um, <laughs> so if you see that and then in let's say you you take those because obviously why not and then you start slamming those and you start slamming all the good black cards that get past you and then pack two you take I don't know some random black card in your pick one and you get past I don't know Maul the Skyclaves you got to go hold up whoa, wait a minute, what's going on here? Um, maybe you were waffling a little bit, taking some green cards in pack one as well. But then if you get past this bomb white card, early pack two is the last place for you to find your lane, I'd say. Uh, because right around there, you can start seeing if there's any last minute signals. I once actually had this happen to me where I got past a Maul the Skyclaves uh, pick two uh, in pack two. And I went in on it because I was like, whoa, hold on. If, if the person on my left is passing me Maul the Skyclaves and I hadn't passed... I. Uh, there weren't any good white cards in the, in the previous pack. I wasn't sending in a signal that it was open or anything. It's like, wait a minute, this could be something big. I ended up with a very strong, I think that ended up being a black-white deck. Not really, but I don't think it was a cleric deck. I think that one had some other like rogues and, and stuff. And that was an interesting one. But my point stands. So um, just a reminder that like a signal uh, is when you get past something really early. And I think, or when you get past a really strong card in a certain way. And I think... Um, Kind of the cutoff for signals, pack one, you want to be looking for signals, and then early pack two. I think around pick three, pack two, you should have your uh, your lane, your archetype, whatever you're in. That's about when, when you want to have it down. Past yeah. that, you risk waffling. Definitely. And it's worth noting, too, if your pack two, pick eight, is, you know, you get you get that pack sent to you. And you see a signal in there, maybe you have a royal eruption or an into the royal is still in the pack, pack two, pick eight but you're not in either blue or red, you're probably still wanting to pass that card. Yes, it's amazing, and it's a huge signal that that color is open, but you're midway through pack two. That's yep. too late to, to switch your deck. And, it, of course, it context-dependent. It depends on what cards you have and what, how splashable the card you're seeing as a signal is and whether you're you're equipped to, to splash that color. But you really want to... Basically, pack one is your find-the-lane pack. You want to be looking through pack one, taking as few colors as possible. If you can get through pack one without taking any colors, you're doing great. <laughs> uh, that's not entirely true, but it's virtually impossible to do that in most formats. But if you can get through pack one and only have one color in your in your pool, you're in a good spot because that means that color's probably open unless you're taking mediocre cards in that color, but that's sort of a different topic. And your setup to be as effective as possible in pack two because you can open a, any color rare basically and take it and move in on that color with signals in mind, right? So, that, so that's huge. Pack one, find your lane. Pack two, build up your build up that lane, bolster the lane with a second color, and then pack three is fill in any any random holds that you might might still have. So um, so what you're telling me is that I should take twenty cliffhaven kite sails and twenty swamps and put them in a deck? Yeah. So I, I stay very open in my colors. <sighs> 
<laughs> yeah, you do that, Ben. You, you do that. Let me know how that goes. Uh, uh, yeah, I will. I plan on it. So uh, this also kind of goes hand in hand with avoiding like the favorite archetype trap. Um, you never want to sit down at the table and say, I'm going to draft this thing. Unless you're drafting for fun, in which case, knock yourself out. But if you're drafting to win games, as most of you are, read the, read the, read the, the draft table. Read the signals. Uh, pick up on things. And Zach, you actually have an example here about uh, <laughs> that's something you do with that. Yeah, I do. Yeah. So I have... I am a player who tends to have very favorite archetypes. I, I like a specific play style and I'm poor at the play styles I don't like. I, I don't play as well with those play styles. In this format, Clerics is my favorite deck by far. Not just because it's the best deck and I don't think it's really a stretch to say that it's the best deck hands down, but it is just the most fun deck and it has the most fun combos and combination of other cards in, in the archetype. Uh, so it, it is the most fun for me. That said, I pretty much force clerics anytime I open a good cleric uncommon. So if I open a cleric of life's bond, I'm probably making that card make my deck. And that's not correct. I shouldn't be doing that. If I open a cleric of life's bond and white dries up and I'm not seeing clerics, I shouldn't be trying to force clerics. It's just not, it's not going to make my deck strong. And I tend to do this even more heavily with archetypes I know are supposed to be bad. Mm -hmm. So for instance, in Zendikar Rising, red green is not really an archetype I'm ever interested in drafting. And it takes a lot to get me in that archetype. That said, there are decks that can go very well in that archetype and can still trophy and can still, you know, beat other decks. I just often never, I just don't, don't draft the decks, even if they're open. And that's, you know, something I need a, a game changer for, <laughs> I guess. But that, that's a, that's kind of the anti of this. That's avoiding a deck on purpose, but that's also a trap that you don't want to fall into. Right. So we wanted to wrap up here with just some general building guides in case a, a brand new drafter is ever listening to this. That's right. I'm talking to you, brand new drafter. Uh, presumably someone sent you this podcast and was like, hey, you could listen to this for a little bit of an intro. Well, if you're sitting down with a bunch of cards that you drafted, you want to put about you know 17-ish lands in your deck, maybe uh, 15 to 16-ish creatures, 7 to 8-ish spells. Uh, if you're playing like a wizard's deck and you picked a relic amulet and you've got more... Uh, spell payoffs than that you can adjust those numbers accordingly maybe go up to 10 or 12 spells and uh, 13 to 15 creatures right this format specifically in zendikar rising is a little more complicated because of the flip lands but check out some of our other episodes on that i don't want to talk about flip lands anymore flip lands have been analyzed to death dude yeah they really have yeah that that's kind of the gist of it when you have your lane you have the plan that your your deck is trying to act on and you are at the end of your draft a lot of players want to know what is my deck actually supposed to look like? I have all these cards, but what do I do with them? Uh, yeah. So yeah, that that's kind of the gist. You want about 17 lands on average, and it depends. I think in best of one on arena, you can often get away with 16. Um, and aggressive decks that have low curves tend to want fewer. Um, but on average, in general, you want 17 lands, like Ben said, and and uh, about 15-ish creatures, and then the rest being being other types of spells. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you ever want like specific, as we might say, contextual advice on a deck build. Send in our Discord. We have channels for that, right? Uh, we probably get like probably like six or seven decks in there a day just from people sending in like, hey, what should I do with this? Like, I got this pile of cards. Uh, we have any thoughts? We have anything? And uh, Zach and I chime in. Everyone else chimes in. It's a lot of fun. Uh, I love talking about these decks and I love seeing the plans that people can come up with. Even at this point in the format, I, I still like seeing new things. Absolutely. That about does it for us this week. Hopefully you were able to pick up on some of these game changers and the, hopefully they'll change your games. Uh, make your drafts better and overall just give you a little boost in your, your win rate. 
Um, if we missed anything, feel free to let us know in the Discord. We want to do a follow-up on this at some point to get a little bit more in-depth. But if you are really, really needing more information on some of the best uh, like drafting habits and things of that nature, definitely go check out that article Ben mentioned, uh, Drafting the Hard Way by Ben Stark. That will answer probably 95 <laughs> to 100% of your questions. But yep. if you want to ask us anything directly, jump in the Discord. That's the best place to do it. Um, also, once again, just want to shout out the Patreon. That's the best place to go to give back to the show directly if you so desire. We have five tiers up there uh, with various different rewards, including stickers. And Ben mentioned uh, earlier that he will build you a deck. Um, Please, I can't app. wait. <laughs> uh, so that's that's one of the tiers as well. And uh, you have access to the show notes and a bunch of other things. So check that out if that's your thing and um, keep the podcast doing its thing and getting getting better. We're trying to pour it all back into the community. So thanks a lot for listening. That'll do it for us this week and we'll catch you next week. See you later. So before we go, I want to shout out the Vintage Cube. And sorry to everyone that's arena only. You're going to have to download the archaic mess that is Modo. Hey, they updated uh, it recently. Don't give it that. It's it has like <laughs> something resembling a sleek new look. That's <laughs> it. Something tangential to uh, an aesthetic appeal. Yeah, I, I look forward to seeing that. Well, I will say the literally the only thing that can get me to go on Modo is Vintage Cube. Uh, because it's just so much fun. Uh, if you have never played a Black Lotus before, this is your chance. You don't get to physically hold it. Um, I don't know. I probably don't trust myself to physically hold a Black Lotus. Uh, but this is kind of like that. So for those that don't know, Vintage Cube is a collection of Magic All-Stars. We're talking uh, Black Lotus, the Moxin, some of the power cards that you often uh, don't get to play with in your everyday experience. Uh, if you've never cast an Ancestral, I recommend you try that out. But I wanted to uh, highlight this by sharing one of my favorite experiences from Vintage Cube. So there's a bunch of different archetypes in this, uh, in this format. My favorite, personal favorite is uh, Green Ramp. I love just getting a, every single elf that I can grab and then ramping into something stupid and big, like a, I don't know, Natural Order or something for Progenitus or some nonsense. The old um, elf ball. Yeah, just some, some good elf ball stuff. And then maybe some Garrick's in there to, to smooth things out. Actually, I saw that they added all the, uh, the mythic flip lands from Zenicar Rising. So that'll be a cool addition, I think. Um, my favorite experience in Vintage Cube, though, was when my opponent was playing Reanimator. So turn one, they play a Swamp. They cast Thoughtseize, which uh, reveals target player's hand, and they choose and discard a card from it. They cast Thoughtseize on themselves. Uh, and that was a little scary. I immediately knew that uh, they're doing some kind of reanimator nonsense. They put, um, uh, it's the Archon. What's that thing called? It's the five mana five, five, or no, uh, eight, seven mana five, five flying. And when it ETBs, destroy a permanent. And when it leaves, destroy a permanent. Mm, I, I can't remember called. the name, but I know, I know the card you're talking about. Yeah, it, it's a, it's a reanimator payoff. Anyway, they, uh, used, uh, they used Thoughtseize to discard it from their own hand. But of course, that revealed their hand to me. So I got to see that they were playing Exhum, which is a one in a black sorcery. Each player puts a creature from their graveyard onto the battlefield, which, you know, uh, pr pretty good. Uh, the joke mm -hmm. is that you do it on turn two before your opponent has a creature in the graveyard and you just win the game. So they're about to get like a turn two huge flyer and blow up one of my things, uh, possibly a land, maybe one of my moxes, whatever, uh, whatever they could hit. So me, having a brain the size of a galaxy, 
Uh, I decided to just. Does that fit in your I head decided, there? It's uh, is your head big enough for that one? <laughs> so I decided to draw my card. This is my first turn. I drew my card, looked at my hand, and I was playing a green ramp deck, and I had a mirror battle sphere, which is like an eight mana, like five seven. When it ETBs, you make a million tokens, and then they can all tap and help it attack. Um, so I decided to just not play a card. I had eight cards in my hand. I passed the turn. I went to discard, and I discarded Mirror Battle Ball. Uh, my opponent paused for a second, realized what I was doing. They played the second land and passed. Because even though they would have been able to cast Exume, reanimate it, get that flyer, then I have an army of 1-1 one, one tokens. It's actually it winds up being better for me because I had a removal spells in hand. I could take care of a single flyer, right? Um, they just decided not to. And uh, after that, I just kept playing a normal game. And I ended up winning in the end because uh, I messed with the game plan. That uh, I absolutely had so much fun coming up with that situation. And that is by far one of the tamest things <laughs> that I have seen in Vintage Cube. So that's my, uh, that's my shout out for it. If you want a fun limited experience, go, go give it a shot. Yeah. Also, if you want more information on Cube and you're interested in that, check out our Building a Cube 101 episode. We did uh, a brief stint on... Uh, the, the, the beginnings of the draft chaff cube that Ben and I are working with the community to put together. So mm-hmm. check that out if you're interested. <laughs>